All right, Mark, you can go ahead and come up. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man, and they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mark. How would you guys like that reading assignment? (laughs) Thank you, Mark, very much. Well, this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 5, the first genealogy uh, described, at least with this kind of detail, in the Bible. And uh, I didn't pick it, by the way. So just so you know, leading up to this morning, because we were figuring out who was preaching when and that kind of stuff and vacations and everything, um, I was assigned Genesis chapter 5. I didn't pick it. And if I could have, I would not have picked Genesis chapter 5, just so we're clear. 
Um, someone that I heard this, this past week as I was kind of studying and reading up and hearing some other pastors, they described Genesis 5 as, wait for it, the first boring chapter in the Bible. <laughs> I'm not lying. Truly, truly what I heard. Um, so before we start, I just want to say that is a lie. That's a lie. Okay? That's a lie. I don't know if you were tempted to kind of tune out as Mark was reading and going through right there. But this, my friends, we talk about this a lot, and we will keep talking about it a lot. This is the word of the Lord, okay? This is not just a textbook. This is not just a book where sometimes you get to it, it's like, oh, I guess that was for somebody else, probably was. We'll skip it on to the part that's more relevant to me. This is God's word preserved for thousands and thousands of years for us today, this Sunday, as this church in Mount Airy, all right? And I'm saying that to myself as much as, as anyone else. It is important and good for us to remember. This is God's word for us this morning, even the generations, even the genealogies. And so before we dig into it, I would ask you and encourage you, don't be too quick to pass over the genealogies uh, that we're in this morning. Don't be too quick to just dismiss what we're reading and jump onto the next more exciting spot. It's very easy to do, but I think we actually lose something if we're skipping over sections of God's word like that. So this morning, I am grateful that I was pushed into Genesis chapter 5 and have to dig into it and learn what God has to say to us. And I believe this morning that God has something to say to you as well through it. And so this morning, uh, I just want to pray for us right now that God would help this word get inside of us and change us, to transform us, to pierce into our hearts that we would be believers in him. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you that you are a God that loves to reveal yourself to us. I thank you that you are a God that loves us enough to preserve writings for years and years and generations and generations and has it here for us today. I thank you that we have the freedom and the ability and the intellect to even be able to read these words and to understand them. And Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us, without whom we wouldn't be able to get any life source out of this Word. So we thank you that your word is alive, and I thank you that we have your spirit, that we can be changed by it. And Lord, this morning I pray an extra blessing on us, Lord, that you would help us, please, to stay focused, to understand, that you would help our minds engage and help our hearts to engage in what you're saying to us this morning, that we be changed for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. So before we dive too deep into Genesis 5. I just want to start with the real easy surface. What are the obvious things? One thing in particular, I don't know if Mark was reading, maybe you were kind of tuning out. Um, it's pretty easy to do, but there's probably at least one thing that stood out to you as Mark was reading. Anything about numbers that by any chance, like anybody's like, whoa, that's weird. There was some really big numbers in there. Did you notice that as he's reading the, the account of people's lives? Even the dudes that lived for a short amount of time were like an order of magnitude longer than the longest human lives today. Crazy, right? So I'm going to dig into that real quick because otherwise I think it's going to distract us for the rest of the morning. So at least it will for me. So I just want to get into that um, so, so we can at least process a little bit. So just to put this in perspective, this is kind of helpful. I think it was kind of fun actually when I was looking at it. If people still lived today like they did back then in terms of lifespan, then as an example... Marco Polo would be 767 today. Still has a good portion of his life left. Johann Sebastian Bach, ever heard of him? 
He'd be in the early stages of his music career right now at 331 years old, just getting started, right? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he's midlife. He's only at uh, 538, maybe starting to bald, getting a Corvette or something like that at this point, right? <laughs> Wayne, yeah, you probably even haven't, haven't had your first kids yet. Yep, you're, you're just getting started, just getting cranked up. So just to put it in perspective for us, it is not like the world we live in right now. Like just, just grab a hold of that, okay, and let your mind run wild a little bit. And so we're going to kind of do this together, just some of the thoughts that I had as I was thinking about this. So these are the first people to ever be on the planet, right? They come out of the garden. God says, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And they're going out. Now the ground has been cursed, so there's hard work. But there's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to grow in. So imagine the first people on the planet learning how to do stuff for the very first time, right? I mean, you're framing up a house. You're like, uh, how big a wood do we, I don't know, a toothpick? No, too small. Um, a, a log, okay, too big. Like you're finding the two by four dimensions and stuff like that. Everything you're doing is being done for the very first time, right? Breastfeeding, the very first time. You don't go to any classes. You didn't read any books. You didn't open any manuals. You are the first person doing these things or the second or maybe the third, etc. So I think there could be a, some blessing associated with God letting people live this long. Blessing to the humanity. Blessing to people in general. There is a lot of trial and error that you can learn in 900 years. At the end of 900 years, you probably know how to do a lot of things right from learning the hard way. I have a, um, a little chart I'll pop up. I'll have James pop up here that I just threw together really quick based on these numbers that we have. The y-axis there just starts at Adam and moves down the line of names that we read this morning. And the x-axis is just basically years from when Adam started. And so one of the things that jumps out here, apart from the fact that people live for a really long time, look at the overlap in lives. Right? Nowadays, it'd be really strange for me to have like a lasting, long-term relationship with my great-grandparents, certainly not my great-great-grandparents. People in this time had relationships possibly with their great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Just imagine that. Like not a little bit of overlap, like the majority of your life was overlapped with your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. So just to, this is, I don't really, not going anywhere far with this, but just to, again, put in perspective, picture this. Noah's dad, Noah, Ark, we haven't gotten there, but you guys remember the story, right? Noah's dad was on the earth the same time as Adam. Noah's dad could have had coffee with Adam and talked about what was it like to be in the garden as the first perfect man. I'm not going anywhere with that, but isn't that cool? I mean, isn't that just like, it kind of changes the way you think about some of this stuff and the stories that we're reading. I mean, imagine the amount of overlap that you have to be able to talk with your great-grandparents and your great-great-great-great-grandparents, especially the faithful ones, to hear like, what was it like to walk with God? What was, what was happening then? Adam talking about the, what happened in the garden. It would be completely unlike anything we've experienced today. Lessons could be passed on. Experiences could be shared. I feel like you'd hardly need writing at all because you could just talk to the person that experienced it. Also, though, I think that long lives was probably a curse of sorts as well because we know the world was not perfect. We're going to learn some more about that as we get into the text this morning, but we've already learned from last week the ground was cursed, work was hard, people got sick, people got hurt, people died, people were murdered, mistakes were made. 
It's not uncommon today. I mean, I've talked to several people who are elderly, maybe toward the end of their lives, and hear the regret that they have or the sorrow thinking about over their lives, the mistakes they've made, the people they've hurt, or even just, just an overall sadness of considering where the world is today based on where it was where they, when they were younger. Well, imagine that being multiplied seven, eight, nine, ten times, where now you've had 900 years to recount and see the results of your sin. I mean, imagine Adam. He knew what it was like to walk with God in perfection, and yet he's alive for 900 years to watch generation after generation after generation being impacted and suffering and hurting as a result of his decisions. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine for us the sorrow and the burden that people must have carried during this time frame as well. All right, I'm going to move off the long lives thing, but I think that kind of helps frame us a little bit of just perspective. It's not like it is now. Things were definitely different than they are right now. One of the things science likes to do is say, okay, what can we extrapolate? What can we learn based on what we can repeat and what we can see and observe right now? What we are reading about this morning, it doesn't apply the same way. It's not the same as things are right now. Things are definitely different. And I guess I'll add on that a lot of people have tried to figure out why people live this long too. I mean, our brains start to go crazy. Like, what the heck? Why were they living so long? Like, there was a canopy of water around the world and it shielded people from the ultraviolet rays of the sun or people's DNA hadn't been corrupted that much because they were closer in Adam in terms of generations or maybe food was better. The trees, you know, was more nutritious for people to eat. Um, but truthfully, we, we have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. What the Bible does tell us, dudes lived long lives. All right, so we're going to take it at that and move on. And as we get into Genesis 5 this morning, we're going to get a picture, a better picture of what it was like to be on the earth in those days, what it was like to have a relationship or not with God in those days, and what it was like for the very beginning of mankind as they're filling the earth. So in order to do that, let's just recap a little bit from where we were last week. For those of you who weren't here, you get to listen in. For those of you who were here, test time. Not really. Just kidding. Okay, so last week, Adam and Eve, we heard about them. They were waiting for someone. Who were they waiting for? Adam and Eve were waiting for the... She's got it. They were waiting for the serpent crusher. You remember that? The promise that God made to Eve and talking about as he was cursing uh, the serpent, he also made a promise to Eve that through her offspring that Satan, the serpent, is going to be crushed. His head is going to be crushed. And so we can imagine that that would be the only real source of hope that Adam and Eve potentially have at that point. They're waiting for what seed is going to come from them. What offspring of Eve is going to be the serpent crusher? And so we heard last week is, okay, Cain and Abel, great. They have two sons, probably going to tag team the crushing of the serpent. One side, one side, something like that. But Abel, he's not the serpent crusher. Why is that? He's dead. He's dead. All right, so he's not the serpent crusher. Fine, we'll move on to Cain. But wait, Cain is the murderer of Abel. And what's worse than that, as we unfolded last week, not only was Cain a murderer and a sinner, but he also went out of the presence of the Lord. He went away from the presence of the Lord. He didn't hear God's warning and respond to it. Instead, he rejected the Lord God and walked away from him. So we have two strikes. Abel, not the serpent crusher. Cain, not the serpent crusher. And at the very end of chapter 4, we read that Adam and Eve have another son. And Eve names him, what? 
Seth, which kind of means like restart, or we have some more hope here. Maybe he is a serpent crusher. Maybe this is the one that's going to redeem us, to rescue us, to provide some relief from the pain and the toil that we have right now. And that's where we closed last week in chapter 4. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? All right, cool. So, this morning, we start in chapter 5, and we pick up at that same spot. As we get in there, we kind of get like a reboot or a restart of of everything even. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Yeah, that's right. Everything was really good. God created man and and woman in his image, and he blessed them. Okay, that's where we are. Everything's good. Then verse 3, we get reminded that Adam had a son. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. We'll get back to that later. And after his image, and named him Seth. All right? So things are looking pretty good at this point. We got reminded of what we heard in chapter 4. Then after that, Adam told Seth everything about the garden and sin. And so Seth called on the name of the Lord, lived a perfect life, destroyed Satan, sin, and death for all mankind, and no one ever died again. The end of the Bible is chapter 5. Maybe 6 for like a recap or something, right? (laughs) But that's not what happened, is it? What do we read next? What comes after verse 3 that dashes our hopes and is truly tragic? Look down at verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. He died. Like, pause for just a moment. Consider reading this story for the first time. Adam, the man made in God's image, who walked with God, the man that God crafted from the ground, from the dust of the earth, is now returning just back to dust, decaying. The very man that God breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, breathes his last. This is tragic. This is devastating. And I'll admit we get a little bit overly comfortable or just assuming, yeah, of course, Adam died. This is a big deal. This is the first man. This is the man made after God's own image. He wasn't supposed to die. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Verse 5 is a devastating blow. Adam lived kind of a long time, but he died. And it harkens back to Genesis 2.17. Go ahead and turn back there in your scripture journal. Genesis 2.17. This is before sin entered the world. Genesis 2, 17 says this. This is God talking to Adam. He said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely, what? Die. You shall surely die. And we know that there was a lot of death that came, different types of death that came when Adam and Eve sinned against God. Spiritual death. But this, verse 5, is an unmistakable reminder that in fact sin has entered the world and death has in fact come to mankind. And it, it's proof also that God was telling the truth. God said what was true, what would happen. And also proves that Satan, no, he was a liar. And Adam and Eve, they believed a lie. They rejected God's truth. Adam dies. 
But again, if you pretend you haven't heard this story before, maybe it's not so bad because Adam, he's the one that ate the fruit, right? He's the one that rejected God initially or, or came out from under God's authority initially. And Seth is the one that we're hoping for as the Satan crusher. So if you're reading this for the first time, you, you don't know anything else about the Bible, you'd say, well, yeah, of course Adam died. He has to pay for what he did wrong. But Seth, he's, he's going to do it right. He's going to do redeem mankind. He's going to make, make things right to crush Satan. Unfortunately, verse 8, what do we see? Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And he died. And I think this is a good uh, reminder, or harkens back to what we read real briefly in the beginning of chapter 5, is that Seth is in Adam's image. Adam was made in God's image. Seth had a son, and his son was in Adam's image. And like Adam, Adam had sin and had death, was dying, so his offspring. So Seth also, as we learn, as we know now, Seth also was in Adam's image, and Seth also dies. And now if we look at the whole rest of the chapter, we get that same resounding, terrible, awful beat. It's like a terrible chorus that gets repeated over and over again at the end of every person. What do we read? And he died. 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 It's like with every person that we read, every person in this line of Seth that dies, it's like our hope just gets squashed a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Who's going to be the Satan crusher? Is he even coming anymore? Did we misunderstand? It becomes painfully obvious that the serpent crusher, at the very least, is not going to be coming very soon. Mankind is in a horrible, never-ending, tragic death cycle. Someone has a son, he's born, but then just like everyone else before him, he dies. I think an important point, and one that we don't necessarily jump to, is that these are like the good guys. This isn't Cain's line that we learned about last week. Cain's line, we, we read about them. We heard about a couple of his descendants and his sons back in chapter 4. But it doesn't go through such detail and to say, and he died, and Lamech died, and so-and-so died. Of course they died, right? They're not here today. But that's not who God chose to emphasize dying. Who does God choose to emphasize dying? It's the line of Seth. It's the righteous, so to speak, line. It's the good guys. It's the ones who have not left the presence of the Lord. Even they are dying. Go ahead and put up Romans 5, James, on the screen. Paul says it this way. Just, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to what? All men, because what? All sinned. All men, because all sinned. All men because all sinned. Not just Cain's line, not just to the really bad ones, not to the people who happened to be born unluckily into sin. No. Death came through Adam, sin came through Adam, and spread to all men. All die. Everyone dies. It's hard to read this and not be hit with the reality that we are going to die as well. 
And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And it hasn't stopped with our grandparents or our great-grandparents or us or our children will die. And they will die, and they died, and they died. In church, we don't like to think about this at all as people. And then certainly as a culture, we really don't like thinking about death at all. We like to pretend it doesn't exist. It's almost as if we are still wanting to believe what Satan said in the beginning, the stupid lie, which was, you will not surely die. It's like we still hear that in our ears. We're like, yeah, I won't surely die, or he won't surely die. I mean, just think about it. We use surgery to draw our skin extra tight so that we hide wrinkles as if that somehow keeps us from actually aging. We make great plans about our future retirement that's going to last and be long, and we're going to do active stuff, not thinking about the fact that we probably will hardly be able to walk at that point. We hoard up our possessions and our money, saving and saving and accumulating and putting them all together as if in 50 years it even makes any difference at all. We put makeup on dead people inside of padded boxes before we put them underground to pretend like they're resting or sleeping and not actually dead. It's pathetic. It's crazy. We like to pretend like death doesn't exist, like we're not decaying, like the end isn't going to come. But chapter 5 reminds us we're going to die. There will be an end to us. As we look around, we get reminders of this over and over again as well. We just like to not look at them very much. Our parents, who seem so eternal when we're little and unchanging, as you get older, you recognize that, no, they're becoming more frail. One day they're gone as well, not to walk with us or talk with us anymore. Maybe we've known people who once had brilliant minds or solved the world's problems that one day wake up and don't even know how to use a microwave anymore. Great athletes hobble along with walkers. Our bodies ache, get sick, heal more slowly, all pointing to the sad, inevitable truth that just like the people in Genesis 5, we will die. I was going to end the sermon here, but Kaylin said we don't have any good closing songs. Plus, I guess it would be kind of a depressing sermon, right? So what we're, what we're going to do is let's look back over Genesis 5 and pay attention because I think there are three interruptions to the death rhythm. I think it's good and it's right that we're supposed to hear, and he died, and he died, and he died. And we're supposed to get that sense of sorrow, of stomach kind of dropping out of, wow, there is no hope. There is no hope for mankind. This is what God was talking about. It's death. But I also think that Genesis 5 is full of hope for us. So we're going to look back over, and I want to show you three things that interrupt the death rhythm. Three things that break up the flow of the text. If you were writing it, you would say, why did I put that in there? It doesn't make any sense. It breaks the flow. So the very first one is in verse 22. I just want you to listen to me read. I'm going to grab the sections as they progress here. So starting with, with verse 7 with Seth. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh, 807 years. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan, 815 years. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared, 830 years. 
Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. Did you hear something different? Did you hear something that like, didn't rhyme you know, in that poem as you're working through it? It's almost like a children's book where you, know, you turn the page and at the end, like the very hungry caterpillar, and he was still hungry, turn it. And he was still hungry, turn it. But he was still hungry. And then you get to one spot and it's completely different than the previous page. It interrupts the rhythm. And I think that's on purpose. I know that that's on purpose. This is God's word. This was written with intentionality. God breaks the rhythm to emphasize that Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. So let's hit the pause button before we go any further, and let's dig into what that means. What does it mean that Enoch walked with God? It's put there as a stark contrast to the other things around it. It breaks up what, we got, what we've been reading so far. So let's not just skip over it and keep going. But let's pause, stop, and say, okay, Lord, why did you say Enoch walked with God? What does it even mean to walk with God? Church, how do we find out what does it mean for Enoch to walk with God? What do we do in the Bible when we're hit with something like that? Context, right. You start close in, kind of in rings. Matt described it before. Look at the passages around it and say, does that talk about walking with God or Enoch? And work our way out, work our way out, work our way out in the Bible, growing context a little bit further away. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Thankfully, we don't have to just guess or make something up. We can go to Hebrews 11. It's actually two passages elsewhere in the Bible that talk about Enoch. Yes, this Enoch. Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. I think we have that for up on the screen as well. Yep. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now listen to this part. We're thinking about what does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean for Enoch to live? What did he do in his life? So as we're reading Hebrews 11, that's what we're listening for, okay? Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we got a little picture of what it looked like for Enoch to walk with God. The first one, just a really obvious question, is it good or not good to walk with God? What would you say? Those in favor of it's good to walk with God, raise your hand. Yes, and we don't just have to guess if it's a good thing or not. We see Hebrews 11 says, what does it say right in the middle there? He was commended as having what? Please God. Okay, so walking with God is a good thing. I know it's obvious, but just to make sure, that's what Scripture says. Enoch, please God. This is a good thing. All right, let's keep understanding what this means then. What is the key ingredient? What's the necessary thing in order to please God or the necessary ingredient in order to walk with God, according to Hebrews 11? Faith. Faith is a necessary ingredient to please God. Faith is the necessary ingredient to walk with God. You should write that down if you haven't yet. And just in case we didn't know what it means to have faith, Hebrews 11, which you could preach 47 sermons on this passage alone, Hebrews 11 fills that out even more for us as well. It doesn't just say have faith, but it fills out, well, what does faith look like? Look at the latter part of the verse here. For whoever would draw near to God must believe what? That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's what faith looks like. That's filling out faith. Faith is a type of belief, and so it's believing that God exists and believing that God rewards those who seek him. And so I think we can faithfully say that Enoch 
believed that God exists, and Enoch believed that God, faith, that God rewards those who seek him. Enoch believed that God existed, and Enoch believed that God rewards those who seek him. I think Hebrews 11 tells us that's what it means for Enoch to walk with God. There's one more passage of Scripture as well that talks about Enoch. You ready for this? Anybody else know what it is? Jude. The book of Jude talks about Enoch. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Shame on me. Jude, verse 14. We have that up on the screen as well. Here we go. It was about these that Enoch, wait, is it the same Enoch, you ask? The seventh from Adam, yes, it is the same Enoch, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. This is Enoch talking. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We get a quote from Enoch in the book of Jude. This is what Enoch did. This is Enoch talking. What, what's a way that we could summarize this? Then we could say that Enoch prophesied against wickedness, against ungodly. Did you hear that come out a couple times? It also gives us a better picture of what it looked like to live in Enoch's time as well, wouldn't you say? I think from this we would say that not everyone was pleasing the Lord. Not everyone was walking with the Lord at that time. You think that's faithful to the text to, to, to say? It seems like there was absolute and desperate wickedness in the earth at that time, in fact, which is not a surprise to us based on what we've learned about Cain's line and based on what we understand what it looked like when sin entered the world. And here we have Enoch, who is walking with God. He has faith that believes that God exists. He believes that God rewards those who seeks him. And then Enoch proclaims God to the people around him. He warns those faithfully around him. He prophesies. He tells people what will happen if they do not repent. If you don't turn away from your wickedness, he's calling out the things that are wrong, the things that dishonor God, the things that are speaking against God. That's what Enoch did. Probably for many hundreds of years, maybe even his whole life. His whole life. Enoch believes God enough to not only reject sin around him, but also to prophesy and warn the people around him. In an attempt to summarize this up, uh, you can write this or maybe something better. Enoch walked with God by having faith in God, which caused him to proclaim God. Enoch walked with God by, Hebrews 11, having faith in God, which caused him to proclaim God. Or another way to put it, Enoch pleased God by having belief in God, which caused him to proclaim God. It's important for us to consider or to pause and say Enoch did not please God because of all the good stuff that he did. Enoch pleased God because of his belief, because of his faith. Enoch's belief in God, in God caused him to not live in the way that everyone else did around him and caused him to proclaim to the rest of the world. There's something else cool about Enoch. And maybe you knew this if you're more astute than I am. But did you catch something special about Enoch's name by any chance? This is cool. This is not the first Enoch in the Bible. Did you know that? This isn't it. 
We're only like a couple generations from Adam. There's only a few people, you know, a few names you feel like you'd have to come up with at this point in time. And yet, what, we're already duplicating names. We have Enoch. This is actually Enoch 2.0. This is not the first Enoch in the Bible. What? I know. It's true. Go back one chapter. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Genesis 4, 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore who? Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. What's going on here? Why are there two Enochs? Is it really just because they ran out of names? I don't think so. This is God's word. This was written purposefully. This is recorded purposely for us. I think one of the reasons God did this is to show us to contrast and compare Cain's line and his descendants versus Seth's line and his descendants, those who walked away from the presence of the Lord and those, at least some, who are walking with the Lord, who are seeking him. If we look at Enoch 1, we would say that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, had children. Cain built cities. We heard that that's one of the first things he did. He built a city, and he called the name of the city after his first son, Enoch. Probably a big city, probably a grand city. We don't know how long Cain lived, but if he lived, what, a, a measly 300 or 500 years, you could really get some work done in that amount of time. And he names the city after his son. Anybody here have a city named after them? That's kind of a big deal. That's pretty cool. That's kind of a nice thing to be able to say about yourself. Oh, this is, this is my city named after me. And yet, and yet, Enoch 1 is not listed as having pleased the Lord or walking with God. Maybe if we change the words a little bit, still using words from the text, we could say Enoch 1 walked away from the presence of God following his father's footsteps. Enoch 2 walked in the presence of God. Enoch 2 walked with the Lord. Enoch 1 walked away or absent of the Lord. Enoch 1 had a city named after him. Enoch 2 had well, we don't really know anything about named after him or anything that he accomplished, but we know that he was faithful. And yet, Enoch too pleased the Lord, walked with God, was faithful. And so I think this is an awesome opportunity for us to stop, again, right in the middle of a genealogy in Genesis. Who would have thought? But to consider, well, do we want to walk with God? Do we want to please God? Do we want to be like Enoch too, in some capacity? I hope the answer is a resounding yes. That's why we're here. That's why we're learning. It's because we, we desire to walk with God. We want to honor him and please him. So the great thing is we get to a little example here already in Genesis 5 of Enoch. And I think we can apply this to ourselves. We can be reminded that a picture of what's pleasing to God is not being skilled. It's not building cities. It's not inventing great technology or making music transforming society even. What's pleasing to the Lord is having faith. It's believing him. That's it. And you've probably heard that before as well. Isn't that the same beat that we hear in the rest of the Bible as well? All the way through Jesus and the New Testament. Have faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What's pleasing to God? What is a life pleasing to God? Faith. Belief. Believe that he exists and believe that he will reward those who seek him. 
Having faith that actually does something. Faith that transforms you. That you believe it enough that it informs everything that you do. That's what it means to walk with God. That's what it means to please him. That is what Enoch did. Isn't God so gracious that that is all he requires of us? That's wild. That's mind-blowing. I mean, just imagine where we are in Genesis so far. We have seen high treason against the king of the universe committed by Adam and then his line that comes after him, born in sin, in active rebellion, living the way that Enoch prophesied against, in ungodliness and ungodliness and ungodliness. You would expect that God would say, so what I require for you is that you have to mutilate yourself and you have to give up everything that you ever had that was good and you have to, oh, by the way, live a perfect life and buy back the wrongs that you have done. That's what we'd expect to have. But instead, the God of the universe, who was the one sinned against, says, what do I desire from you in order to be pleasing to me? Faith. Believe that I exist. Believe that I will reward you if you seek me. That's what Enoch did. And he walked with God. He walked with God. So that's our first interruption to the death rhythm. Enoch walked with God. It was different than everybody else. Lived, 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 lived. Enoch walked with God. Second interruption is actually also from Enoch. This one stands out probably even a little bit more. I'm sure you caught it. The chunk about Enoch, if you're looking at verses in your Bible, has one extra verse tacked on to the end. All the others only have three verses. The first one says they lived 900-some years or whatever. The second one says they lived after they fathered their son. And the third verse says, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Or verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Mahalelo were 895 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Period. Period. No end. And then we get an extra verse tacked on. Verse 24. Take a look at it. Enoch walked with God. Remember that? And he was not, for God took him. Okay. He was not, for God took him. I've never used that in a sentence before. Let's go ahead and look at Hebrews 11, see if we can clear this up even a little bit more to make sure we understand what God is talking about here. Hebrews 11 says this. We already read it once. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So in case we were like thinking, well, maybe that means he like didn't die or something. Very clear here. Enoch did not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. God had taken him. What? Enoch didn't die? We just got finished reading, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. We know that the curse of sin is death. We just talked about that. For all, for everyone. And yet, this interruption, right in the kind of two-thirds through this genealogy, says, wait, not everyone dies? Enoch didn't die? And again, I really do think it's very helpful for us. Just This is hard. But pretend you don't know anything else about the Bible at all. Pretend you've never heard the word God before and you're trapped on a desert island. You only have the first five chapters of Genesis. That's it. Up to this point, what do you know about what happens to man when he dies? What do we know from Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4 up to this point? We know nothing. We know nothing. We just read into it really quickly and imagine like, oh yeah, of course, after you die, you have heaven or hell or something. But that's not described anywhere up until this point. All we know is, and he died, and he died. In fact, it actually looks 
worse. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 19. Flip back a couple pages. Chapter 3, verse 19. When you're there, say here. Okay, chapter 3, verse 19. This is God when he's cursing the ground. This is what he says to Adam. By, sweat of your, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's all we hear about what describes death or what it means to die. And so if that's all you have up until this point of Enoch, we just read, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What do you assume happens after you die? Nothing. Dust. That's it. You're done. You're done. That's it. You came from dust. Adam didn't exist before. He came out of the dust and then he returns back to dust. He decays and it's done. It's over. And yet, Enoch is the very first glimpse of just a little bit of hope. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's something that comes after death. Like maybe returning to dust isn't the only option for man. We don't know anything else, what's required or or how that works, but this is the first page of the Bible that talks about there could be something for man after death. There could be some hope here. And friends, our God is a God of hope. I think we can even just rest on that for a moment and proclaim him. Our God loves to give hope to the faithful. He loves to say something to his faithful people, to give them some glimmer. There's hope coming. There's a rescuer coming. There's something good that could come out of this. He doesn't reveal the full story yet in Genesis chapter 5 where we are, but we can already see there's something, there might be something here. There might be something for the faithful. Enoch was a man that walked with God and he didn't die. All the death surrounding us, He didn't die. It should stand in stark contrast to everyone else we've read. We were in the death rhythm. Death, death, death. And he didn't die. Okay. And so we can celebrate that our God is a God of hope. After Enoch, we'd love to read that after that, Enoch crushed Satan. That sin was defeated. And Enoch was the first person that never died. And everyone after him never died. Wouldn't that be great? You'd almost anticipate, maybe that's the interruption where we're going to see no one ever dies. But unfortunately, verse 27 picks up right where verse 20 left off. Methuselah, Enoch's kid, died. He died too. And Lamech after him died. And we know Noah died. And we know that death still continues beyond. So Enoch was not the serpent crusher either. We see some hope. We see that he walked with God, but he was not the perfect man that could disarm sin or destroy Satan. Okay, there's one last interruption. One last interruption to our death rhythm that we were in. It's not with Enoch. It's not with Enoch's kid. It's with Enoch's grandson. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. It's the first thing is a little bit different. Everybody else so far fathered someone's name. Methuselah lived 187 years. He fathered Lamech. When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalatlel. Why do I pick that name? I should have used another one. Enosh, when he lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. And yet we get to Lamech. He says, when Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son. As if there's more information coming, which I know there is. Before we get to that, though, this is going to blow your mind. You ready for this? 
this is not the first Lamech in Scripture either. What? You believe this? Are two interruptions that we have. One was Enoch, one was Lamech, and guess what? Cain also had a Lamech as well, just like he also had an Enoch. Not an accident. Let's flip backwards. Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. I'm just going to read this whole passage because I think it gives us some context of what it looked like in that time. Verse 19 of chapter 4 says this, And Lamech, should I go back one more so we make sure we know? Enoch was born, Irad, Irad fathered Mahujel, whatever, fathered Methushalil, and Methushalil fathered Lamech. So this is a different Lamech, clearly, from Cain's line. Verse 19, And Lamech took two wives, emphasis on the took and on the two wives there. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his two wives, he makes a song basically, it says this, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Some of this is a little bit lost on us, I think, because of cultural changes and shifts. But Lamech was a bad dude. He was the seventh in, in line from Adam on Cain's side, on Cain's lineage. Lamech took two wives. It's the first that we hear about polygamy, and there's emphasis on that word took. This is different than just marrying. This is the idea of like stealing, capturing, grabbing. There's even like violent connotation with that. This is a violent man. He takes multiple women and calls them his wives. He has kids that are otherwise seem productive and doing good things. I mean, forging metal tools and instruments. He has a kid that, that makes music and um, that starts the whole farming livestock industry. There's a lot of seemingly good uh, worldly things that come out of his line. But Lamech, we learn, is very wicked. He uses the newly invented music to write a song that basically blasphemes God. And boasts to his two wives that he has taken that he has murdered someone. So, Lamech 1.0, not a, not a good guy. He follows in his father's line. Cain, we can see very clearly, wicked Lamech. Then in Seth's line, there's another Lamech that we get our attention drawn to. And honestly, we don't know much about this Lamech. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. There's not a lot of detail given about him in chapter 5. I think it's probably right to assume that he knew God, maybe even that he walked with God. Enoch was his grandfather. That chart that I showed, before Enoch was taken, Lamech and Enoch were on the earth for 100 years together, just his grandfather, who we know was faithful and warned about the judgment to come. But Lamech 2, he seems different than Lamech 1, who was proud and arrogant and boastful about sin. Lamech 2, though, he seems like he is a man that is just beat down from the pain and toil and suffering in the world. He's very much aware of the suffering of the world, and he knows where it came from, too. Did you pick that up? 
Let's read verse 29 together. This is why Lamech called his son's name Noah. Verse 29, And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech knows that God is the one that cursed the ground. He's also very much aware of the pain and the toil and the struggle and everything wicked and terrible that has come with sin. He's living in that same time frame that we read about Enoch prophesying against. Probably knows Cain's descendants and his relatives and what's going on in the world at that time. Maybe he's just a man that is lamenting his life like I said, we don't know exactly, but we do know that Lamech yearned for salvation. He yearned for rest. He yearned for redemption from the pain, from the toil, from the struggle. Lamech had a hope in his son, Noah, to do these things. I think we can say that this was a baseless hope. Before his son was even born, Lamech hoped that his son Noah would give him rest from his pain and from his toil. Did Noah do those things? No, he didn't. Could Noah do those things? Could a man do those things of give rest to the world or to his father of the pain that came from sin? The answer is a resounding no, unfortunately, despite Lamech's hope, maybe even his hope that that was a prophecy of sorts. But can we sympathize with Lamech? Do we feel that way sometimes? Do you ever wish for rest, for just some relief? Rest from laundry, from dirty diapers, from a stomach virus, from bills that you can't pay, from loneliness, from disappointment, from a boss that bullies you, from friends that hurt you time and time again, from heart disease, from cancer, do you wish for rest? Do you yearn for rest? Do you see the pain and the struggle and the toil? Do you recognize it as something that is awful and terrible and hurtful and just wish for it to end? Why does everything in life have to be so hard? Do you feel that way some, like Lamech did? And like Lamech, have you, have we ever then put our hope in something that can't bring us rest, that can't truly bring us relief? Do we have a false hope in other things, stuff like hoping in our money, that we'll have some security in that, hoping in our job that it'll give us an identity or worth or value, hoping in your friends to bring you encouragement or joy, hope in your spouse to fulfill you or complete you, maybe even like Lamech, hoping in your kids, hoping in your son, to bring you some rest or some value or some aid in some way. It's definitely a temptation for us. We can understand where Lamech is coming from. I think we can relate to him despite being separated by so many years. But Lamech may have prophesied, I think, in a way that he didn't even know. Because Noah, he was not the one to bring rest. He was not the serpent crusher he was not the one to redeem mankind. But Lamech said this in verse 29. Let's read it again. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Put on your gospel hat for a moment. 
let yourself go ahead and read into the New Testament in your head and just think, do you know of anyone else who went into the ground that was cursed and came out maybe after, say, three days to give us relief, to give us rest from the work, from the toil, from the struggle? It was someone way better than Noah, someone way better than Enoch or better than Seth and better than Adam. Who was it? Jesus, our Lord Jesus, who did come through the line of Noah. Like I said, maybe Lamech was kind of right. We know that he was the only one that could truly bring us rest from our toil and from death that came from sin. This morning, it was kind of neat. We heard about Enoch 1 and Enoch 2. Didn't even know they existed before I was studying this passage. We learned about Lamech 1 and Lamech 2. Paul tells us, though, in 1 Corinthians, there's actually an Adam 1 and an Adam 2, though. Right? His name is not Adam, but he is the second and last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45. You have this up on the screen. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's the Adam we read about a few weeks ago. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's the Lord Jesus. He's not just a living being. He gives life. We have a first Adam. We have a second Adam. The second Adam was different than any other man that we've heard about so far or we ever will hear about. Check this out. Verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. Pause there for a second. Remember, Seth was born in Adam's image, and so on and so on and so on. We are born into the man of dust's image. We are born in the death image, unfortunately, as well. The tainted, perfect image of God. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, which is our Savior Jesus. Do you see that he's even redeemed the image that we bear? Our Lord Jesus Christ gives us a new image. When we are reborn, when we are found in him, we're no longer just in the line of Adam or Seth or Enoch or Noah, where we still have death holding on to us as the end, as the curse. We're now we're born into the new image, the man of heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. One more scripture for us from the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Soak this in, church. Don't tune out. For as by a man came death. We learned about that a lot this morning. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Death came from Adam and he died and he died and he died and he died. But through our Lord Jesus Christ, though our physical bodies might die, we know we have a more full hope even than what Enoch could have known that in Christ we shall all be made alive. Death doesn't have a hold on us anymore because of Jesus. We have hope in death. That little tiny glimmer that we saw in Enoch that maybe something happens other than just a man returning to the earth. Maybe there's something else that's coming Maybe for the faithful, for those that walk with God, maybe there's something. 
that God is offering, church, we have a much fuller picture. We know the person. We know the serpent crusher. We know the one that was promised to come. And he came. He came and he died on our behalf. And he did definitively crush the serpent. He did definitively end the curse of death. Though for a little while we're reminded about it in our flesh and in our aching knees and by the loss of our parents or our kids, we can have hope. Substantial, true, well-founded hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess in summary, we could say death spread from Adam to all people, including us. We are also going to die. And we should remember that. Physically, yes. But God offers hope to those who believe. Like Enoch, those who are faithful, those who believe that God exists and believe that he rewards those who seek him. Because of Jesus, we know that physical death is not the end for us. We've been rescued We've been rescued from this death rhythm. As we read Genesis 5, we should hear, and he died, and he died, and then we should say, but we live, but we live, and he died, but we live, and he died, but we live because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, because he died for us, because he was the final one that died. We can live. This is the hope offered to all. This is the hope that we have, church, This is why we live our lives in sacrifice, in love, in servitude to our Lord Jesus. Not because we can earn anything, but because he took the death for us. He's taken it away. Now we have hope in him. We have hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Genesis 5 is about. (laughs) Let me just pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your love for us. Saving this chapter for us today, the first boring chapter of the Bible, we thank you that it's there. God, I thank you that you you are so patient and so kind. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you offered in Enoch. We thank you for giving us an example of a life pleasing to you more than anything. Lord, we thank you for your love for us in sending us your son Jesus, who died the final death for us, who put an end to Satan's rule and to the curse of death that we couldn't escape otherwise. We thank you that it is in you we have hope. And Lord, I pray, I ask you, Lord, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, please change our hearts to be more like you. Please sanctify us, Lord, that we would live lives of faith like we saw in Enoch that we would have hope in the resurrection from the dead that Paul talked about. Praise you, Lord. We love you, and we want to live for you. We want to glorify you with everything that we have. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing.